Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. On this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Kristen Holmes, Vice President of Performance Science at WHOOP. Kristen drives thought leadership by engaging with industry-leading researchers and partners to better understand individual and team biometric and performance data across high-stakes verticals to drive product innovation, strategy, and coaching. Kristen is amazing. She blends her academic and applied background in athletics, which by the way, she's an incredible athlete and an incredible coach. She utilizes performance technology, psychology, and exercise physiology to drive research forward. That's amazing. And I actually met Kristen in Arizona on the Triple Seven Legacy Expedition, where a handful of military guys were jumping out of uh, airplanes in seven days on seven different continents to raise money for Folds of Honor. In this episode, we talk about what you can learn from elite performers about readiness. And if you don't know what readiness is, you're going to learn all about it. We talk about circadian rhythm. Is your circadian rhythm dysfunctional and how to fix it? What the data shows about hot and cold and its impact on your health and wellness and what that means for you. In this episode of the show, you will come away with more information than you bargained for. And speaking of which, this episode and these shows are free. Please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and share it and enjoy the show. This episode is sponsored by House of Macadamias. Let's talk about nuts. And no, I'm not talking about those kind of nuts and I am not a urologist, so that's just really bad mom jokes. Macadamias, House of Macadamias. I love these nuts and here's why. They have 30% less carbohydrates than almonds, which I'm not a huge fan of almonds. They are delicious. They're rich in omega-7s. They have dry roasted chocolate, white chocolate, raspberry white chocolate. They have two grams of net carbs. It doesn't really matter what kind of diet you are following. You can put them in your nutrition plan as long as it is calorie controlled. This company is amazing. They have partnered with farmers in Africa. These are the best farms in Africa who have sourced these macadamias. They have a whole slew of different products, whether it's macadamia nut oil, again, whether it's dry roasted or it's dipped. They even have bars. Easy to travel with, which I love. Go to houseofmacadamias.com slash Dr. Lion and you can use the code Dr. Lion for a 20 that's right, a 20% discount on your first order. I think that you will absolutely love it. These are one of a kind. In fact, I've never seen a low carb version of dipped macadamia nuts. Head on over to houseofmacadamias.com slash Dr. Lion and use the code Dr. Lion for 20% off. A special thank you to Apollo Neuro for sponsoring this episode of the show. I am totally obsessed with my Apollo wearable. I use it all the time. I recently got the white one with rose gold. Sometimes I wear it on my wrist. Sometimes I wear it on my ankle. Why do I love it? I love it because it helps me stay calm, focused, be more present. It delivers a silent vibration, helps condition my nervous system to recover and rebalance. It's unlike any other wearable out there. It doesn't track your health biometrics. What it does is it improves your health by strengthening your nervous system. Connects to your phone. You can program something like energy or focus or calm. And these programs are designed by neuroscientists and physicians to program your nervous system. 
It's safe. It's natural. It allows you to feel your best without drugs or side effects. I guarantee you will be obsessed with this. You can get $40 off your Apollo wearable at apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion. This technology is a game changer. In fact, I love it so much that I reached out to the company and I want to have the founder on because I'm so impressed with the impact that it's had on me. There are peer-reviewed studies validating this. They're actually working on more studies right now and showing how it increases heart rate variability and really makes you more resilient. Head on over to apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion and you'll get $40 off your Apollo wearable. Kristen Holmes, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. We, I just want to share a little bit about how we met, actually. So we met on the 777 expedition. They were doing a training jump, and this, is, this was like in the middle of Arizona. By the way, literally in the middle of Arizona, yeah. in nowhere, Arizona. <laughs> and the 777 is the elite military operators, the SEALs, were doing uh, seven jumps in seven days on seven continents. Mm-hmm. And to raise money for Folds of Honor. Exactly, to raise money for Folds of Honor. And that's where we met. I know. It was uh, it was so great. I mean, I, I was just fangirling you, you know, for ages. So the opportunity came about to, to be able to hang out with you in person. It was it was pretty incredible. Well, so. I appreciate that. But the real fangirl moment is about to happen right now <laughs> because I've begged you to come on this podcast. You are a amazing resource for all things adaptation. And I would love for you to share a little bit about who you are, what you're doing. And then I want to jump in before we go forward. I want to talk a little bit about your history because you are a very interesting mix of you've been a competitive athlete Mm -hmm. and then a coach and now a scientist. So, yeah. um, Gosh. So, yeah, as you said, I'd I I guess early career, I was a a two-sport athlete at the University of Iowa. I competed in field hockey, was my main sport, and also competed in basketball, and then went on to compete for the U.S. national team, Um, was actually competing in college uh, at the same time for the U.S. field hockey team, uh, and spent about seven years uh, competing for the U.S., uh, which is incredible, and then simultaneously was getting experience coaching. So I coached um, the U19 uh, national team. Actually, I was wasn't too much older than them at the time, but um, but got my got, got my kind of uh, get some experience in in the coaching world and, and just loved it. I loved uh, working with athletes. I loved um, you know obviously the the technical and tactical aspects of the sport. I just uh, you know was adored um, and and loved trying to kind of solve these really kind of acute problems um you know in in kind of that environment um so it was coaching at the international level and then uh got an opportunity to be the head coach at princeton university so i went on to coach at princeton for 13 seasons uh, and it was field incredible hockey, right field hockey field yeah hockey. yeah and i was uh kind of in, in parallel t- teaching a, a seminar there um aptly uh, titled performance optimization uh, which was great and it was just a mix of I had some student athletes but some students as well um, so yeah Princeton was in a, really an incredible experience um, and I was actually while I was at Princeton I was building a technology um, I was uh, had I was using just Fitbit API and pulling in their heart rate data and transforming it and, and really trying to uh, understand this notion of readiness. So you mentioned adaptation, you know, I've always been really, really interested in, you know, how do we, you know, at the time, obviously, it was coaching. So how do I, 
how do I set, what are the conditions that actually enable my athletes to show up with the necessary capacity to take on the load that I want to put on mm. them that day? Um, and, you know, with this technology that I built, I, I realized very quickly that the load I was putting on them in practice, those two hours of training, actually didn't predict next day readiness. So I wasn't necessarily able to use those data to inform how I train them tomorrow. So for those folks in kind of the coaching world know that that is what we're always trying to understand. You know, what kind of load volume intensity can I put on my athlete to train them in a way that is going to maximize their adaptation? So I realized kind of in the in the data and over the course of years and years of training athletes that it's the other 22 hours that they're not with me that is most predictive of um, whether or not you're going to adapt in a functional way to previous day training load for sure but life load um, so it's these other factors um, you know in, in training it depends what phase of training you're in of course but um, you know training plays a, a, a part but it's just a piece of the puzzle so it's what are these other factors that really are going to influence whether or not we can show up tomorrow for you know with the right amount of capacity hmm. to to operate in a way that feels really good. You must have had some really interesting aha moments mm -hmm. that change the way that you live your life and also what you are doing now. So right now you are why don't you why don't you tell the the listeners? Yeah, yeah, so I'm Vice President of Performance Science at a technology company called Whoop, uh, W H O O P. Uh, we make a physiological monitoring device that is basically taking in, you know, at a very high sample rate, huge amounts of heart rate data and then transforming that data to give you insight into how your body is responding and adapting to external stress. So we measure things like heart rate variability and resting heart rate, uh, sleep. We model that to give you a sense of how you're adapting to load. Um, we have a very deep dive into your sleep. So looking at your sleep architecture, um, the time in bed, uh, your consistent sleep consistency, how much sleep debt you're, you're bringing on. Um, and then we uh, measure your strain, which is a kind of a summary statistic of your cardiovascular load that builds throughout the day uh, in real time because you can see it. And there's lots of like, coaching and um, advice on the platform on, you know, how to improve the metrics that we say are important to track. Um, yeah, so I, I basically in, uh, involved in the research side of things. So I do a little bit on the validation side. So working with external partners to really understand uh, to really give Whoop a point of view on, you know, what are the behaviors that move around the metrics that we track? So if we say heart rate variability, for example, is an important marker to pay attention to, what are the, th what are the behaviors that are going to um, in, you know, increase heart rate variability or, or decrease heart rate variability? And, and increasing heart rate variability is a sign that you're adapting functionally to stress. And what is heart rate variability? So heart rate variability is a time interval between heartbeats. And the more variability... Uh, the healthier you are, the more responsive you are to um, to your environment, you know, the more able you are to adapt to your environment in a functional way. Hmm. And so you are able to measure these outcomes mm -hmm. based on the input that an individual is doing in not just training, but in the other 22 hours of their life. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we have obviously a very rich data set that we can pull a lot of these data from. So we can go in and retrospectively look at our data set and, and, and ask some of these questions. But where my kind of job is a little bit different, we do retrospective analysis, but we do a lot of perspective studies. So we're trying to isolate effects. Hmm. So for example, 
what does time-restricted eating have on next day recovery and how does it impact sleep? How does it impact your training capacity, um, your, your mental health? Um, you know, these are questions that um, we try to ask of our data, but are, you know, try to do in this perspective kind of research are able to get surveys and um, have kind of qualitative data that helps us contextualize. Um, yeah, those those data. And what are some of the buckets that you look at? Yeah, so um, so circadian um, is is one of the the big buckets and, and a, a massive fo focus of my research. Um, so we're really looking at um, and when people think about circadian, it's basically um, you know the environment is giving our body clock. So we want to be able to anticipate what's happening in the environment. And that's really what our circadian rhythms help us do. And in terms of what's happening in the environment that our body is anticipating and trying to respond to are things like eating and exercise and activity. Um, and, you know, light is a huge influencer on our circadian rhythms. Um, so, you know, when we're viewing light and when we're not viewing a light is going to impact our alertness and our sleepiness. Um, and we want to make sure that um, all of those um, external inputs are aligned with our endogenous preferences. So we have these preferences um, that our body wants to, to do. And when there's a misalignment between what we actually do and what our endogenous preferences are, that's a term called misalignment. Mm -hmm. Can you say so, that again? I think that that's a yeah. super critical point and probably at the focal point of circadian biology. So I think people underestimate how important it is to ensure that there's alignment between our endogenous preferences and what is happening in our daily life. Mm. So we have basically an active phase of our circadian rhythm and an inactive phase of our circadian rhythm. So things that should be happening during the active phase of our circadian rhythm is we should be viewing a lot of light. We should be exercising. We should be eating. Um, and then there's this inactive phase of our circadian rhythm, which is, you know, basically once the sun goes down, we want to not eat. We want to be you know, kind of start to ramp down our social activity, ramp down our activity levels generally. We want to restrict our light viewing. So it, when we don't, when we are doing things during our interactive phase that should be happening during our active phase, our body, all sorts of deleterious things happen mm -hmm. um, and have severe repercussions mentally and physically. If these are kind of, if you're chronically misaligned, um, this is going to wreak havoc, havoc on your system. And when you talk about circadian alignment, cir circadian a circadian clock is a 24-hour clock. Mm -hmm. Correct. And the active phase of the circadian timing mm -hmm. uh, for a non-nocturnal mm -hmm. mammal, such as, right. as humans, humans, would yeah. be, or yeah. uh, would be uh, eating, mm -hmm. I don't know, exercising, yeah. all the things that you said, also probably mental activity. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be way more primed to focus during the active phase of our circadian rhythm. So that's basically once the sun goes up, once the sun goes down, that's when cognitively we're going to be primed. Um, and that's when we're going to be metabolically, you know, most efficient to, you know, we and, and biasing toward earlier part of the circadian rhythm, like earlier part of the day, we want to try to take on a bulk of our calories. Yeah, I think that this also just sets up um, a big picture concept is that when the sun goes down, we should be shutting down, essentially. If we were to truly live in alignment yeah. with these circadian, preferences, these endogenous yeah. preferences, yeah. nobody does that. And I'm not I even know. just talking about I know. food. I'm talking yeah. about 
you know, doing work at night, even if it is not on a computer, it's still reading, it's still very active. Yeah. And we live in an environment that throws us out of any kind of circadian alignment, right? Yeah, we we really do. And, you know, it's it's a... <sighs> You know, we haven't adapted to blue light, you know, as a species. So I think that's really important to to recognize. You know, we're we're looking at blue light from our devices. You know, certainly after the sun goes down. You know, obviously filters help, and blue light blacking glasses. Do we help. know what adaptation would look like for a human to blue light? I don't know. I don't know, and I I don't know if that's been investigated. Um, you know, what would be required? Yeah. Um, you know, but I can tell you that it's not going to happen during our lifetime. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> I know, which is, which is a bummer. But I mean, if you think about, you know, 20% of the labor force are shift workers. That's 600 million people mm -hmm. are working outside the hours of of seven, of, you know, basically 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., right? If we think about that's our time point of like when we want to be active. And and we know shift workers, obviously, um, you know, they, they, you know, I hate to say it because I, I, I hate, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Cancer, pro cancer, cancer proneness and yep. um, obesity, and obesity all kinds and, of uh, yeah, and, and glucose, diseases. Yeah. Um, metabolic dysregulation. So it's 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 sad. But um, that said, you know, the focus of my work is, is actually in these high stakes, high stress environments. So I, I do. I study military operators. I study frontline healthcare cl physicians, clinicians, providers, um, and professional athletes, all who really struggle with this circadian misalignment. Um, but like you said, this isn't just a, a problem for shift workers and operators and athletes. Totally, it's everybody. This is everyone, right? And I think it's just raising awareness, like letting people know that, hey, these have profound consequences on your ability to you know, show up and live your values in a way that, you know, feels good to you. And and I think once people experience alignment, circadian alignment, um, they I think they start to they they recognize, I think, the opportunity mentally, physically, and emotionally. And um, and I think once you experience that alignment, it is actually hard to go back. Hmm. And it's not about being necessarily perfect every single day, but I think thinking about your life in, in terms of okay, you know, when when can I actually align myself with the natural cues in the environment? And and what would that actually look like for myself and my family? Um, I think it's an important exercise. Um, uh, again, you know, if we want to try to reduce our illness and injury burden. Um, Which we all do. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I think we all, yeah, I mean, all, we, we, none of us want to get sick. You know, we want to be available for life, you know, um, and I think availability, there are some very specific behaviors that we can deploy that help us be more available. You know, I always think about this from, in a, you know, from an athlete perspective, you know, availability is everything when mm -hmm. you're coaching a team, like, you know, the more athletes you have who are available to train and compete, literally more successful you're going to be. Um, and, you know, not that that completely trumps talent, but availability is everything, right? Um, so, but, I, and I think about that in the context of just, you know, normal people walking around, like we want to be able, I mean, you know what it's like when you're sick, like the world just, you know, falls apart kind of, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, how do we pay that down? Well, you know, we adopt behaviors that promote this alignment. And what are those top behaviors? Yeah, so definitely um, viewing light the moment you wake up is really important. Does it have to be outside light? Yeah, natural light. Generally, you know, basically when you kind of step outside, you know, prior to, to 10 a.m., you, you're bathing yourself in a, a you want to five minutes, you'll you'll basically expose yourself to about 100 lux of light. Clothes and, or no clothes? Um, I mean, the more 
like the skin. natural lights on your skin, um, the better. No question. I mean, vitamin D, um, there's lots of benefits. But this is really about the light entering the retina. So once that light hits the retina, it then um, signals to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And then it, you know, has a downstream signaling to the, every peripheral clock and, and, you know, the central clock. Basically, every cell, organ, and tissue in your body is receiving this information, which is incredible because every which is insane, right? Cell has a clock, <laughs> exactly, and and those clocks need to know what to do, right? And they're anticipating that morning, that moment in the morning where you're going to view light. So, literally within 20 minutes of waking up, you want to get outside. Um, you want to view the natural sunlight for five to 10 minutes. If it's super bright out, five minutes is plenty. You're going to get that hundred, you know, thousand lux of light. And this is our hardwired biology. This is hardwired yeah and there's there's yeah there's kind of no no getting around this really and most people don't get up get outside no it's not adequate to do it through a window correct it is not no it's it's just it's a lot less efficient i'm gonna take you hours and hours hours and and then the idea what are you doing i'm just sitting in the window the window You've been there for five hours no. yeah but um but yeah just simply getting outside um has lots of benefits um you know but but mainly it's it is really about getting that that pulse of light um which you know, then you release cortisol, like all of these things, you know, from a uh, neurological standpoint are, are begin firing. And it basically tells your your system that it is time to be alert. Right. And um, and, and that is really, you know, kicks off the ability to, to have, you know, uh, high levels of cognitive functioning um, and, and just energy levels. Um, it also tells your body that it's probably time to eat. Um, so there's all sorts of things that are, are happening when you view that first pulse of light in the morning. Um, and then the kind of behavior that I think goes along with that is that you want to restrict light after the sun goes down. So it's important that, because um, that, what happens when we view light when after the sun goes down, um, your body then thinks it's time to be awake, right? So it confuses the system. And this would be overhead light, yeah, screens, so, or any kind of light. Yeah, any any kind of any kind of light, really. And you just the the I think the strategy, I suppose, is just to dim the lights in your home environment the best that you can. Limit the amount of interaction you have with devices. You know, just put the filters on, put the blue light blocking glasses. Try to block block all that at that light. Because um, what happens is. If you have that exposure, your mel melatonin production, like the kind of sleepy hormone, right. is um, going to be delayed. It might not be as strong as it typically would be. Um, and there's some interesting mechanism uh, mechanisms related to that that I can talk about in terms of um, how it impacts our metabolism. But um, and mel melatonin has a neuroprotective effect. I mean, it's so important. So if we're not releasing melatonin or it's it's weak, um, that has a lot of lot more consequences apart from just whether or not it makes us sleepy or not. So um, yeah, so that blue light or that light light after the sun goes down is really going to inhibit that melatonin production, um, and we might fall asleep just because we're exhausted. But that is actually going to influence the depth and quality of our of our sleep over the course of the night. Basically, what you're saying is a good night's sleep starts actually in the morning. You can't you you have to fix circadian rhythms in order to fix your sleep. And I think that's again, I think when we talk about this from an industry perspective, that like frustrates me a little bit is because we talk about sleep and we talk about sleep hygiene, which is very important, right? Cold, dark, quiet, without a doubt. You know, we need to manage our stress throughout the day. Very, very important for sleep. But it's their circadian behaviors that really impact whether or not we're going to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep. Um, and I think that's the second piece to kind of fixing sleep is is definitely stabilizing or reducing that night-to-night sleep-wake variability. 
And that would mean going to sleep at the same time and limiting light. Anything else? Going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time is probably the best thing that you can do for mental and physical health resilience. And this has bubbled up in all of the research that we have done. Um, We are able to objectively measure when you go to bed and when you wake up. So we have a very clean measure of your sleep regularity or your sleep consistency. The more variable that sleep-wake time is, the more physical and mental issues we see. Like things like anxiety, depression. Yeah, so just general psychological functioning. So yeah, anxiety, how you perceive stress. Um, you know, with the military operators, the more variability, the more homesickness they feel, the less control they feel uh, in their daily lives. Do you think it's a fatigue issue or is there something else with the circadian biology that affects us above and beyond some of those perhaps known factors? Yeah, I think, you know, duration kind of matters, which impacts, you know, sleep loss will impact obviously fatigue, um, but we see independent effects. That's what's interesting here. Yeah, that is interesting. Is that sleep-wake time seems to operate kind of independently and has its own, um, you know, when we're not when we're not stabilizing our sleep-wake time, that seems to have its own effects. I mean, when we think about it has a direct effect on our on our on our insulin sensitivity mm-hmm. um so and it has a direct effect on melatonin production obviously so and i mentioned melatonin production being so important but that is again i mean that's going to influence your uh, metabolism it's going to influence um you know your cognitive functioning i mean melatonin really is a critical hormone and i think you know, if I think about the problems that we have as a society from a health perspective, a lot of it probably goes back to this the, the weakness of our melatonin production. That is, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so someone is going to wake up at the same time, mm-hmm. go to bed at the same time, mm-hmm. light viewing in the morning. Yep. Dimming the lights at night, yep. you know, overhead as much as possible. Yep. What kind of um, range is there? Is it safe to say you can wake up with a 30 minute range, yeah, 15 minute range. What is the kind That's a of great standard? question. Um, and this is an area that we're um, investigating more in our data to really see, you know, can we actually tell you that, hey, an hour left or right, you know, in the 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 sleep and wake will produce X effect. So we don't have those data yet. Dr. Gina Poe, who is a sleep scientist out of um, I think she's Cal Berkeley, and I apologize if that's incorrect, but she's an incredible uh, sleep scientist, a leader in her field. Um, she says 30 minutes of variability on either end um, is suboptimal. Oh, so this so is that's these really, ranges that's a, are small. That's a really tight window. I, I know, and I, I think that's why you know we really see these strong effects um, once we get outside that 30 minute block. Again, we these are prelim data, um, but once we get outside that 30 minute block, I mean that's we see that in our data too. And you see strong effects on mood, uh, perceived stress. What about anxiety? Um, and and sleep architecture. Okay. So, you know, when you look at a REM onset and then um, and looking at, you know, how, you know, how much time we're spending in these deeper stages of sleep, uh, sleep-wake variability is, is massive. I mean, I'd almost go to say that if you have to prioritize, you know, the length of sleep versus this consistent sleep-wake time, go for this consistent sleep-wake time. I mean, this is a behavior that I've been working on it's a hard behavior. I'm not going to like, you know, like it is sugarcoated. Like it's hard to stabilize your sleep-wake time given all the distractions and all the things that you could be doing. Um, but 
once I stabilized my sleep-wake time starting in like 2017, I literally haven't been sick. I haven't had a cold. <laughs> I haven't. Now, obviously, I do a lot of other things, right? Um, but that was like the one massive behavior change. So I keep my I keep my variability, you know, below 30 minutes for the most part, you know, on average. No matter um, what? I mean, I, I do my best. For the most you part. know, I do my best. Yeah. When I look at it over the course of a month, I'm pretty much you know, at that 30 minute to 45 minute window of variability. Um, but I, I think that that has been the single most important change that I've made and has, I think, you know, my markers, my blood biomarkers, my, um, you know, my, you know, my inner age, you know, things like that, um, that I can objectively measure my heart rate variability, my resting heart rate, my fasting glucose. I mean, all of those things have improved significantly i mean clinically significantly what about the things during the day for example mm. i'm sure that there's an ebb and flow that's supposed to happen with light if we were yeah. to imagine that we were outside there's sometimes that light is higher and yeah. sometimes it's different are there things within the day that we should be doing yeah i mean getting as much light natural light as possible i would say is is kind of the um would be the prescription. You know, if you really want to try to set your circadian rhythm and um, and and get quality sleep at night, expose yourself to as much natural light as you can during the day. It's hard. You know, we work in offices where it is, you know we're it just is. it's it's really hard. You know, but just whenever you get the chance to get outside, get the light on your natural light, and you know, on the retina, on the face, on the skin, you want to try to do that. What about the large sun lamps? If someone is like, yeah. I cannot get outside, yeah, or Maybe they can go for a 10-minute walk or maybe they have an hour lunch break. Probably yep. not. Would a, a light box suffice during yeah. the day? Yeah. I mean, it is – there's no question it's better than nothing. And and that is definitely what we recommend for our shift workers, um, yeah, to try to, you know, kind of make up for that lost uh, natural light. Nothing can replace, of course, right. the natural sunlight. Um, but the, the red light boxes are awesome. Okay. Yeah. What about food? You mentioned food. Yeah. There's this huge push. And actually, I usually, before I met you, I would fast till noon. Mm -hmm. And when you and I were sitting down and talking about this circadian biology and this yeah. circadian biology of what the body clocks mm -hmm. are meant to do, because I think food actually trumps light when it comes yeah. to its impact on changing uh yeah these clocks or impact i mean them. light is definitely the strongest mediator oh good for sure good so yeah so light lightness during the active phase darkness during the active phase is is kind of if we we're to put a taxonomy that's number right. one I, I would say you know your eating window is probably two um so there and there's lots of really good research i mean i see this in in my own data as well and in, in the whoop data um you know folks who eat a meal within two hours of bedtime have um you know, it definitely have a negative impact on all the markers of recovery as well as sleep. So in, in what's happening mechanistically there is um, we, digestion is a parasympathetic activity, right? So we think of rest and digest. Um, sleep is also a parasympathetic activity. So when you're trying to do these both at the same time, they compete for for resources and digestion is always going to win out. So we're always going to bias toward our 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 system will bias toward digestion. It's got to take care of that first. And then it can recovery, do, you know, do all the things that we wanted to do from a recovery and regeneration standpoint. Um, so you want to, once you go to bed, like, you know, 
if you intend to sleep at, you know, 10 p.m., you want to basically probably stop eating at like seven. Give yourself a three, you know, at least a three hour, a two to three hour buffer between when you, um, your last meal, your last calorie, and when you intend to sleep. And that um, will put you in a position to, to really, um, maximize um, all the things that need to happen during sleep that enable you to kind of wake up as rejuvenated and refreshed as possible. This episode is brought to you by Inside a Tracker. That's inside, like inside your body, insidetracker.com. Why do I love Inside Tracker? Well, because everybody complains about getting blood work done. I don't care who you are. You typically don't like to do it and you don't like to go to the doctor's office. I've heard it a million times, but you do need to get blood work done, especially if you care about yourself and you care about your health and well-being, which is why I love Inside Tracker. In fact, I am getting a mobile blood draw on Tuesday to see what's going on with me, not because something's wrong, but because I should do it. And if I'm going to talk to you about it, then I'm going to do it myself. So I'm going to be utilizing their mobile blood draw service, which is amazing. You can head on over to Inside tracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get 20% off all their store. So anything in their store for a limited time only, 20% off, which is a great deal. There are a handful of different packages that you can choose from, whether it's the ultimate or anything else, the inner age 2.0, you name it. But it really is important to understand what your hormones are doing, what your biomarkers are, what are the things that you can control, and what are the uncontrollables. Inside Tracker provides you with valuable information. It is vetted, it is evidence based, which I love, and it's a great service. And I think that more and more people should be and will be using them. So head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. I've been working with First Form since 2018. I love the company. I love the people. Of course, you've heard that a million times. They make great products. And one of the products I want to talk to you about is a microfactor. And it's a complete daily nutrient pack. People come to me and are really confused about what to take. There's a lot of information in this space. Should they take a multivitamin? Should they take an antioxidant? And at the end of the day, you might be taking a bazillion supplements and everything is disorganized. These are single serving multi-packs, which make it super easy. They have a multivitamin, CoQ10, an antioxidant supplement, even a fruit and veggie tablet and essential fatty acids. These are great individual packs. That way there's absolutely no excuse. You can check it out at firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform, one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash Dr. Lion. And it really takes out all the confusion. If you're one of those people that use it as a barrier to entry, meaning I don't want to stock all my pill bottles and then put it into a pill organizer. This takes all the work out of it for you. It also eliminates confusion. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and check out their microfactor complete daily nutrient packs. That's great advice. I failed to ask this question. Does it matter when someone wakes up and when someone goes to sleep? Is there a natural biology for all humans or is everybody different? Yeah, everyone's a little bit different, but you know, to be clear, midnight is the middle of the night. Right. So I think the night owls. Yeah. And um, for us moms, midnight is like 3 a.m. That's terrible. I mean, <laughs> I know. Totally. I'll see you. Good night. I know. 9 I know. PM. Exactly. 9 p.m. is my midnight. I know. Yeah. Having kids is like the best because <laughs> their circadian clocks are so darn strong that you cannot. Oh, my kid. Yeah. Go to sleep. I know. <laughs> but um, but but yes, um, no question. Um, there there are certain things 
that need to happen that if we are awake, they simply cannot happen. So um, what the science says around that is is basically if we are if we are viewing light between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., our the dopamine system next day doesn't work as effectively. So the reward system, right? So those neurotransmitters are basically dampened when we're viewing light between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. Would that lead someone, so if the dopamine system, which is that drive motivation yeah. system, would that A, make someone be less driven or be more likely and more vulnerable to, I don't know, risk-taking behaviors? All the above. Okay. Yeah, we just, when when those systems aren't working properly, it's hard to make clear decisions about our life. <laughs> and, I, and I think, and, and so just kind of go back to your original question about, you know, when should we be falling asleep? Well, if we know that there's these deleterious repercussions happening when we're viewing light between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., then we know that, okay, well, 11 p.m. is too late to go to bed. So, and if 12 is considered kind of the middle of the night, then if I'm a night owl, my biological preference for sleep is probably around 10.30-ish, 11, I would say the latest, right? I mean, at minimum, if you're going to sleep at 11.30, you absolutely do not want to be viewing light from 11 to 11.30. Or if you're falling asleep at 12 a.m., you don't want to yeah. view light between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. So we, we just, we know that there are serious next day ramifications. And obviously, if you do it once or twice a month, no big deal, right? Of course. But this will add up. And we wonder where are all these mental health issues coming from? It's it's viewing light at a phase of the natural light dark cycle. Like that is, that is what's happening here, I think, mm. at, when we're looking at the mental health issues at scale. Um, I think it comes back probably to um, to viewing light in these inappropriate times. That's really critical and important to understand. Yeah. Do you wear sunglasses? I don't, no. So mm. I definitely try to um, uh, take on as much light as much possible. Light as possible. Um, I need glasses to see, unfortunately. But um, yeah, so yeah, I try to expose myself to as many of the you know natural kind of um, wavelengths as possible uh, during the day and even at night. So the moon and you know that also is a cue for your system. So watching the sunset is also really powerful and, and can kind of like again, strengthen that um, that circadian system. This is an off the wall question. The full moon would that keep you awake or help put you no. to sleep? No, it's a same, different kind of light. Same thing with natural with fire too. Doesn't affect um, your the melatonin. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. This brings us back to you know we live in this environment where we're driving cars, eating fast foods, yeah. viewing light, just a whole toxic environment, which I, I can appreciate because we are a westernized society. This is yeah. just what happens with the evolution yeah. of humans. But the health is is worse than ever before. But the opportunity to have good health is better than ever before. That's so well said. And I, I think that if we can be really disciplined to put some of these practices in place, yeah. we have more resources and more wisdom mm -hmm. because we stand on the shoulders of these giants of individuals who've been doing research for mm -hmm. decades yeah. to now begin to collect the data much like yeah. you're doing, and then implement and deploy, as you said, and execute. Yeah. Um, so in terms of food, is there a time that, again, before I met you, I was always telling people to fast mm. until middle of the day, which I don't actually tell them anymore. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah. the, my patients, thank you. And the listeners, yeah. thank you. 
from waking up, is there a time that one should eat? Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely sex differences here too that I, I think are important to acknowledge. So men seem to do very well with you know, prolonged fasting. I think women in certain phases of their menstrual cycle will do fine with some longer fasting. So for example, for women who are naturally cycling, I would say during menses and, uh, you know, in your, in, in during ovulation, you know, those are the times where if I am going to try to extend my, um, my window, uh, and your fasting my window. fasting mm -hmm. window, I will go to noon um, just to take advantage of the autophagy and all the good things that are kind of happening with fast. Because I don't want to say that intermittent fasting is bad necessarily, but I think there are times where women are going to be able to do that, right? Because the luteal phase, so once you get out of um, the follicular phase, you know, menses and, and ovulation, you're in the luteal phase, you're preparing for menses or you're, you know, or a baby, you know, depending right. on what what happened. Um, and surprise! surprise. Yeah. Um, and and there's a lot of effort going on in in the body. So fasting puts an extra stress on the body that is just um, that can have negative consequences. And it's it's not the, all the protective and, and good things that could could come from a, a fast. Um, you're you're not able to realize during that phase of your cycle. So women should fast during. Which phase? If you're going to fast, fast during the luteal phase. Okay. Okay. So um, after after menses and ovulation, in the, uh, yeah, do not fast during the luteal phase. I'm sorry. You want to fast during um, either menses or um, or uh, the or the ovulation. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and, and then, is the body yeah. kind of primed to do it anyway? Um, so I wouldn't. So you know, I there's not an, a lot of research on females with regard to fasting. So I just want to caveat that. Um, but what I've seen in my own data is that definitely, you know, during that flip phase, that's when I seem to be able to fast and um, it doesn't, you know, disrupt um, my sleep or, you know, my, my markers look good. Like, I, I think that it would be that would be the time if you're going to do it. Yeah. And then during the luteal phase, you just want to ensure that, um, yeah, you probably want to eat within, you know, an hour or so of waking up. And, and I, I think back to the circadian component, though, um, for both men and women, if we wait to eat all of our calories toward the back end of the day, we are definitely metabolically not as primed to use those nutrients and and digest those nutrients. So we want to try to get a bulk of our protein, you know, kind of earlier in the day. So I totally agree with that. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to hear you say that. So, you know, between 7 a.m. and 4 p.m., we want to try to get as much protein as possible. And that's when we want to get the bulk of our calories. And we've seen in studies when people um, miss breakfast, they tend to actually eat yep. more calories. So um, so I think there is something to be said about, you know, eating three squares a day, um, or if you're going to have two meals, um, you know, biasing toward uh, a breakfast and, and lunch. What is, what's, um, I think fascinating is when you look at some of the nutritional research and Heather Leidy did breakfast skipping, um, meals so she looked at a group of uh, female adolescents mm -hmm. and they skipped breakfast mm -hmm. those that skipped breakfast exactly what you said would be uh, at a metabolic disadvantage they also craved higher calorie foods later on um, but what's interesting is is thinking about all the nutritional research the majority of them don't take into consideration sleep wake cycles i know and potentially that could be the next layer of what is the impact, right? We, we typically look at 
you know, we always, you know, I would I say always, but yeah. typically the first meal of the day when you're coming out of an overnight fast is what we test. It's certainly what's tested in muscle protein synthesis, you know, and and a multitude of other metabolic mm-hmm. nutritional interventions. But very rarely, I don't even think, I think maybe I've seen one study that takes mm-hmm. into account that circadian biology. Yeah, I mean that the dysregulated sleep wake time has huge implications on next day ghrelin and leptin levels. So, I mean there is a very very strong link between night night to night sleep wake variability and 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 uh, glucose metabolism. Hmm. So the first meal of the day doesn't matter the composition from a um, circadian standpoint. I know that it yeah. does. The the composition certainly matters from a metabolism standpoint. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it matters from a circadian standpoint, or do we not have that data yet? Mm, that's really interesting. Th- those data might exist, um, but um, yeah, I'm not mm. quite sure what 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 it would say. I'm just trying to think like logically. Um, you know, I, I still think that you know, fueling for you know whatever your activity you're engaging in is is kind of the right way to think about your fueling during the day. I don't know if you agree with that, yeah, but I do. You know, if I'm going to work out, like I'm going to take on some more carbohydrates, you know, to, to kind of prep for that um for that for that effort. Um if I'm trying to think, I'm going to have more fat, more protein. Um yeah, I I I mean, I have protein at every meal, of course. Dr. Lyon? She better be. But I know. Yep. No, don't worry about <laughs> or, that. Or, um, but I'll the have, first and last you know, have protein yeah. and, and fat if I'm really trying to, to kind of think. And then if I'm working out, it'll be protein and um, and carbohydrates. So I don't know. I mean, I think from a, you know, we want to just try to get that those array of nutrients as early in the day as possible, I guess, is the would be the thinking. That I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah. In terms of meal timing, mm-hmm. do you have thoughts on consistency of meal timing? Yeah. I mean, again, our body just loves regularity, you know, from a circadian standpoint, we're anticipating um, cues in the environment, right? Our, our body's anticipating light, they're anticipating darkness, we're anticipating exercise and activity, we're anticipating food. So yeah, we absolutely um, want to try to, again, line up those endogenous prof- preferences with our actual behavior. So that means that, you know, our body's going to expect you know, food around seven and around noon and around you four can train it or and five. You, you can and you train, can train it. it for sure. Yeah. And you recommend stopping eating two hours before going to bed, or do you actually recommend stopping it even earlier? For yeah. example, when the sun goes down, as early as you can get away with. Honestly, yeah. I mean, once once the sun goes down, if you can, you know, you you don't want to wake up hungry. You know, you don't want to wake up in the middle night because you're starving. And I know a lot of the guys that we work with, yes. professional athletes and and operators, and um, you know, they're just their metabolism is going so fast. Those so, guys are eating Hormel chili under the table. Yeah. Guys. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. <laughs> we know um, what you're eating. Yeah, we know. Yeah. I have some really funny <laughs> stories about, yeah. Um, but- And by the way, when we were at 777, the food choices were really suboptimal. They just want to show- Stunk. Throw that out there, Mike Sorelli. That's right. Gabrielle and I were like, I don't know, splitting a kind bar. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> That's bad. But anyway- um, but anyway, we digress. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I think ideally we stop eating, I, I would say three hours. Um, you know, I kind of, for me, just once the sun goes down, I stop eating. Obviously in the winter, the sun, you know, it's like 4.30 and that's not as practical. Um, but I give myself, you know, an hour buffer of when the sun goes down and, and when I finish kind of my last calorie. Um, but I, I would say, you know, if you do have to eat, um, 
you know, and we actually were looking at this research together, I feel like mm -hmm. a, a few weeks ago, um, you know, casein protein, you know, you just stuff that's easily digestible um, seems to not you know, impact um, sleep architecture and, and sleep onset. And so I, I think, you know, and I think there's more research that needs to be done in that area. These sample sizes are quite small, but it seems like casein is, um, you know, is, is, is okay to eat before for sleep. And, you know, I would say if, if you have some uh, walnuts, you know, again, that will help with the, um, you know, feeling satiated. Um, and walnuts is is actually uh, a precursor to melatonin. So she's unusual. Um, as is raspberries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're both precursor to melatonin. So, um, so those, those could actually, you know, benefit you. Kiwis, we see too, also. Um, Heart, cherry, serotonin. Yeah. Just... You know, those are all precursors to melatonin. So anything higher in serotonin, I, I would say is okay to eat. Um, but other than that, you know, I think we, we probably want to try to avoid. Do food. fluids impact the circadian biology if as they well? Have calories. But if it's just water? No, it's totally fine. Yeah. Okay. So then mm -hmm. there's no cue that uh, would impact. Mm -hmm. so, okay. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. Exercise. Yeah. So it, the research is really mixed. Um, there's actually this pretty large study, but I, I think when I really looked at the study, I, I wouldn't say that it um, accounted for a lot of the confounders that I think tell you whether or not it's a good or bad study. So uh, I'm going to dismiss that study, but um, but I would say just in principle, the more active we are in the lead up to bed, um, generally that's going to make my ability to kind of wind down and prepare for sleep. It's going to extend that time. So I just think in principle, and I think it's it's highly variable. You know, um, I you know I think if we're going to the gym at nine p.m. and we're working out and we're exposing ourselves to a bunch of overhead light, it's just going to make it really hard to fall asleep, right? You probably go back and forth, which is more important: sleep or exercise, getting well, the training in. But yeah, it's I probably mean, sleep because the next day. Yeah, I mean, exercise. I you know I, I definitely go back and forth because exercise is just so 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 important, um, but. You know, you want your hormones and you want you want everything in your body like working as it should, you know, so you got to you have to weigh the cost benefit. Um, there's no question. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm kind of biased toward believing that we need to get the sleep. We, we, we need to be sleeping. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. So I, I think I think that, um, you know, maybe some days you're going to prioritize exercise oversleep potentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, do whatever you can to kind of do it during the active phase of your circadian rhythm. And that that would also probably um, be the same for medications. You probably want to dose medications similar mm -hmm. to a body mm -hmm. rhythm, whether it's testosterone, yeah. or estrogen, progesterone. Um, I'm assuming that that, I don't know how impactful that is, but I, I would guess that there's probably a role for circadian medicine in administration yeah. it's called chronomedicine and it's That's it's an cool. emerging field wow. yeah it's really exciting and i you know this is not my area of expertise necessarily in the sense that um you know i think every medication is going to be slightly different but there is no question you know even if you're taking an NSAID, you want to take that earlier in the day um i mean we see i i've seen in in our data um with athletes that an NSAID can impact sleep um uh it can impact sleep uh, negatively by up to 15%. Really? Yeah. So, which is interesting. So, when it's taken um, in, you know, within a couple hours of, of bed. So, it, have you guys seen anything about PPIs? Uh, no, but that would be very interesting to look It would be. Too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about other things. Mm -hmm. You talk about 
hormetic stress mm-hmm. and heat and mm-hmm. cold. Tell us some of the other things that really make people more adaptable. Yeah. So, um, so there's things, you know, I kind of this, I kind of put this in the recovery um, bucket. So, you know, certainly what we put into our body, our fueling is really critical. Um, and, and this is an area that you, you talk about a ton, but I think there's some really, you know, nutrient dense food, prioritizing protein, you know, all these things are really important. That's going to impact our ability, obviously, to adapt functionally to external stress. Um, hydration, very important. Um, and I would say kind of in, you know, the hydration bucket or, you know, um, or just putting liquids in our body, we want to avoid alcohol at all costs. Um, that is going to disrupt sleep. That is going to impair re- next day recovery, um, executive function. I mean, it's going to impair every part of your body. So um, from a recovery standpoint, if you're looking to optimize recovery, um, don't drink. Don't drink. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a toxin that you're putting in your body and it just, it it just is, we're just, uh, yeah, I mean, you divert all of your resources, get diverted away from recovery when your body is having to ma- metabolize um, a poison. So I would think really carefully, again, if you're interested in optimizing recovery, um, that would be something I would avoid. Um, I think too, like, I mean, we see this very clearly in our data. I mean, that is the one behavior that is most predictive of um, if people consume alcohol within a couple hours of bed time, um, it crushes your sleep. So, you know, your ability to get in deeper stages of sleep is totally compromised. And then you wake up with a substantially lower HRV, which we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, um, is a marker to help you understand how effectively you are adapting. Is there a number that people should shoot for? for so it's totally um, yeah. variable. Yeah. So, you know, your HRV is going to be different than mine. Um, it's based on genetics, heart size, you know, a whole bunch of factors influence your HRV. Um, that said, um, I think people who have lived a relatively clean health lifestyle seem to have a higher, you know, baseline HRV, yeah, which makes it, sense. It makes sense. But it's all relative to yourself. So, you know, you kind of look at, okay, where am I today? And then you want your HRV to kind of increase over time, you know, and, and that's one of the markers when I made that big kind of lifestyle change and started, I'm like, all right, I'm going to stabilize my sleep wake time. That's one thing that I've seen. I mean, my HRV has increased um, 40 milliseconds, which is just you know, insane. I was in the sixties and I'm in the hundreds now. So it's just crazy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to think, uh, very intentionally about the liquids that we're putting in our body, um, and prioritize water. We, uh, the other thing that we see in our, in our data relative to recovery is, is dehydration obviously also has a huge impact on markers of recovery as well as, uh, sleep. What about caffeine and nicotine? Yeah. So, um, nicotine, I'm not sure, actually. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any data around nicotine. Um, I think that's probably because the folks on our platform, very few people probably smoke or report smoking. So, um, what about, but dip and chew nicotine gum? Oh my God. We know lots of individuals. Exactly. I'm just curious if, I mean, yeah, we need to do a study on dip actually. Um, I'm so curious about that. I I know a handful of participants. (laughs) I know. I know. I know dipping's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and, yeah, the nicotine, we don't know. What about caffeine? Yeah. So caffeine within, you know, basically Same after thing. 12, nothing, shocking. nothing surprising with caffeine. It's definitely going to impact sleep onset, definitely fragment sleep um, when you're taking it within a couple hours of, of bed. Um, so yeah, I mean, being really smart about the timing of, of, of your caffeine is, is critical. And obviously there's a circadian component to that. If I were to say, you know, of the poor circadian behaviors that we kind of outlined, I would kind of put caffeine in that as well, just because that can impact our um, 
when we release melatonin, you know, via adenosine. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So we talked about exercise. Now the question that everyone else wants to know is sex. Yeah. Asking for a friend. Uh, yeah. I mean, sex. So um, generally speaking, sex with a partner um, uh, close to bed um, seems to have a positive effect on sleep and a positive effect on mental health. Which is not surprising. Yeah. So we see this, we've seen this in the data, which has been really fun to examine. Sex closer to bedtime, not in the middle of the day. Got it. Um, Oh, you can have it during the day too. (laughs) I mean, I think, I think sex at any time is probably a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it doesn't affect sex before bed does not affect no. someone's circadian no. rhythm. In fact, maybe it has a positive mm-hmm. impact. Yeah. Let's talk about, oh, do you have something? Well, I would just say that for men, it probably um, will help them fall asleep faster. For women, um, not as much. Like we want to cuddle after sex. We want to kind of talk and stay awake a little bit, which is so interesting. Why Why were we Speak made like yourself. that? I'm like, good night. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Saying this is what the yeah. science says yeah, about yeah, yeah. oxytocin, like right. what we release right. um, versus what men release after sex is a little bit different. So our needs after sex are a little bit different generally. Um, so not that sleep onset for women would be, you know, egregiously impacted, but um, maybe delayed slightly relative to a guy. Hmm. <laughs> now, uh, that's a good question. And what was the next question I was going to? Oh, Yeah. Heat, mm. cold, other activities yes. that I think are critical. Yes. Which, so, by the way, you jump in this freezing cold lake. I know. I'm very, and- <laughs> very passionate about colds. Um, yeah, I love talking about it um, and, and and practice this myself. So there's actually some really good, some new research that came out that from a protocol standpoint. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So this is kind of this concept of hormesis and exposing yourself to extreme temperatures, both heat and cold, can have a massive beneficial um, impact on recovery. All right. So um, we see, we see this, certainly see this in the data, but as it relates to cold specifically um, from a protocol standpoint, we, you want to try to once per week, submerge yourself neck down in uh, like 37 degree temperatures, which is very cold. Um, And for like two minutes and then four other days of the week, do a 30-second cold shower. How cold? Um, so just, you know, I know some pipes in Boston are very different than the pipes in Texas, even a little yep. bit different than the pipes in New York, which um, my um, shower today was disappointingly a little warm. warm. Yeah. No. <laughs> These people are so soft people, here in uh, um, New York. But you have, um, so you basically, the brown fat is kind of in your back and kind of your neck and your head. So you basically want to shower where it's kind of hitting your head um, into your back. And um, that's, and we activate the brown tissue. But it was really cool. The study showed that with that protocol, um, the subjects uh, reduced body fat and you know, improved body composition and and mentally felt you know better, more alert. Um, so it was a really nice study. And with, with just 30 seconds, 30 seconds, four times a week, and then one time a week submerging for two minutes in this really cold water. Um, but that, you know, and, and it sounds like, you know, I, I think the effects are pretty significant on just um, our mental health resilience. And that's been shown um there's a really good study in amsterdam that looked at um the experimental group did cold showers uh five days a week uh the control group did not and they looked at um uh sick days and they looked at uh, and they had a bunch of mental health surveys and and the group who um who uh took part in these cold showers had 
uh, many fewer sick days um, and had um, much better uh, had and showed a lot of increase in mental health resilience. Do you think that the cold shower is or the the cold plunge and the cold shower is because they're proving to themselves that they can do something and withstand difficulty? I think there's definitely a mindset component for sure. Um, you know, I'm from New England, so I've you know been swimming in cold oceans for <laughs> my whole life. life. So get in I there. You're three. It's Go like on. a little bit less of a yeah. mindset thing for me. It's more of just like I want to have you know the benefit from you know this brown fat activation and everything that you know uh, cascades metabolically from that um, is is what's really interesting to me. But um, but yeah, I think there's absolutely a mindset component. I mean, it is uncomfortable. I mean, it was adapted as I am. Like it still is like. Whew, you know, when you're getting into 37, 38, 39 degree water, I mean, that is, it feels very, very cold. Do you have to build up to that? Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, some folks, maybe not, but um, I think you just have to really, you know, go with a buddy and, you know, just, just be like, all right, we are going to do this, you know, and it, maybe it's just 15 seconds and then it's 30 seconds. And then, I mean, two minutes can feel like an eternity, you know, when it's, when it's, when you're in 37 degree water. So, um, and, and there is definitely, it doesn't, you're not going to, you know, increase your benefits the more time you spend in the cold water. I mean, there That's is important to it. That's it's really important. Like you don't, and same with sauna, which we can talk about in a second. Like, you know, there is a point of diminishing return um, and not to mention like you could die in seven minutes being in those kind of temperatures of yeah, cold that water. Yeah, that's not so advisable. That's right. not what we're trying to do here. Um, so I definitely advise going with a friend, you know, don't engage in, you know, sumo breathing in the water, clearly, you know. Yeah. So I, there's certain behaviors, recovery behaviors that you want to stack. That is not one of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely that the that cold shock is um, is incredibly powerful for hormesis and um, and you know can really amplify recovery. Does it matter the time of day and when you do it regarding workouts? Yes. So I think um, yeah. So I I would say um, because you know you release dopamine and you know it's like a you feel really alert after the cold water um i would say you probably want to do it in earlier in the day um also you know if you're doing a cold shower for example before bed um that actually is going to um make your body warmer and you know that we know that in order to kind of fall asleep your body actually has to your core body temperature needs to drop by two degrees so um we actually want to take a hot shower before um, or to a sauna before bed so i would say heat in the back half of the day cold in the front half of the day would be my kind of recommendation mm. that's that is because a, of its influence influence on sleep that makes sense yeah in terms of size yeah yeah so this has actually been so fun experimenting so my son plays ice hockey and well so i work with you know just or i'm in contact with a lot of ice hockey players in particular and we've been um and i've been experimenting with this personally where i do just like a 30 second like quick dip and then i get dressed and then i do a workout and i just feel so good and it, mm -hmm. it sounds so counterintuitive in that you know you're cold you're getting your body cold before a workout like you, don't you warm up and it doesn't mean you don't do your warm-up necessarily but i think it's just the um all these you know adrenaline epinephrine and, and dopamine like all these things that are released from the cold just gets you primed to work out so um all the ice hockey guys have been doing like 30 second showers um before the game and you know again it might That's just awesome. be a mental thing it's awesome. like a bonding thing but i think they get this surge and um yeah and my son's ice hockey team has now been doing it which is so cool that is cool <laughs> yeah they have a lot of uh, assets right so they know exactly what they need to do. Uh, yeah yeah you're in there I, looking I'm at not their shy work. about <laughs> kind of helping with the load management yeah. with, with those guys yeah and then what about sauna 
Yeah. So um, in this area, I suppose I know maybe a little less about, but um, I'll say just from the folks who know a lot about it, I will just regurgitate what they've said. And um, basically, I, I think it's 174 is the kind of the temperature. Um, and you can certainly go more than that. And again, the more adapted you are to the heat, um, kind of, I think the higher temperature you can go, there might be a temperature where it becomes unsafe. I'm not exactly sure what that would be, maybe around kind of two. And it's different or something. It's going to be different different for everyone. So you have to experiment. And I know red light versus um, kind of dry heat, different, um, but both seem to have positive effects. Um, And it sounds like from the research that, um, you know, you want to spend about an hour over the course of a week um, exposing yourself to heat. 20 minute sessions is ideal. So three or four 20 minute sessions per week seems to be ideal. Hmm. And does it matter? So you said that uh, probably closer to bed mm-hmm. or later on yeah, in the day. I think so. Helps because uh, it's gonna. Relax. It just makes you feel. Yeah, it makes you feel relaxed. And um, I mean, I think you've you know you've probably done a sauna before, yeah, yeah. of course. We, you we know, and them. you probably have them. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it always just makes me feel relaxed. I just want to stretch and you know just like kind of hang out. <laughs> me, I just want to hide in there. Yeah. Nope. Not home. Yeah. Yeah. Not <laughs> home. Not available. Not available. <laughs> Is there anything else that you see that really sets people apart? in terms of either good or bad. I mean, we really highlighted the uh, sleep-wake time is critical. Food timing is critical. Don't use alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, Train if you can earlier on Mm -hmm. in the day. Prioritize sleep. Yep. Stop caffeine by 12, 1 p.m. By noon. These are all really great takeaway tips. Is there anything else that you see consistently, either good or bad, that maybe we haven't touched on? Yeah. I mean... Training is really important. You know, I, I would say that people probably don't do enough sprinting. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I actually was going to ask you about that. And yeah. I was curious as to how that really impacts in terms of being able to relax and recover because when you're done sprinting, you're exhausted. Yeah, I, I think there is something different about sprinting. And I think there's a mindset component to that too. But I think when you consider just markers for age, like for aging, like I feel like if you can stay fast, like you're you know, you're on a good path in terms of like longevity. And um, so I, I guess I see it. And there's actually a really interesting study with master sprinters looking at telomere length and master sprinters had more telomere length than um, individuals who don't sprint. Um, so I, I do think there's this kind of aging component with sprinting that is is um, is really compelling. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that people don't probably do enough in zone five, you know, and that I, I max totally agree with effort. you. I think people spend a lot of time in these submaximal efforts. And I think particularly for women, um, we, you know, we know Dr. Stacey Sims, and she was just, um, I just spoke to her the other day on, on this topic specifically. And, um, you know, I think for women who are in menopause, uh, you know, resistance training and you know these sub these maximal efforts are actually really really important um so i I think that i I would say that probably spending time in those those maximal efforts is needs to happen more um yeah and that could start one day a week twice yeah i mean really i think the kind of prescription is you know get out of breath twice a week for a couple minutes like that's it you know and if you do that then you're you're on your way. Yeah, you're, you know? you're on and your it's, way. And it's just, you know, go in your driveway and sprint, you know, get, find a, you know, just find a hundred meters somewhere and, you know, a field and and just 
go. Go. You know, or they could do airdyne, rowers. Yeah. Org. Yeah. I think, yeah, if, if people Anything. aren't into running, you know, there's other ways to kind of definitely to reach those maximal efforts. But I do think if you're capable and, and able, I do think there's something about having your feet on the ground and kind of moving fast. I love that. The you know, you do talk a lot about data. I also know that you have another side to you, which is really that psychological side. Mm. And again, you've worked with athletes. You've mm-hmm. been an athlete. Do you see one thing or perhaps one character mm-hmm. trait, and maybe there isn't one, that really allows people to be resilient and adaptable that you've seen over mm. not just you know working with the athletes that are utilizing WHOOP, but just over your career? Because you've had quite yeah. a long career. And you didn't mention how well Princeton did. Yeah, we had under a lot your, of success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. pretty humble. I mean, I think that they... What was the the record? I think. Yeah, I mean, we won twelve Ivy League championships, so t- twelve conference championships okay. in thirteen years, I mean, and a national championship. And when you left, there were tears of sadness <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> no, which is I mean, pretty incredible. They have the current coach is just is really phenomenal. She's a dear, dear friend of mine, and it was kind of funny because when I knew I was leaving, I was like, Carla, you need to you need to come take over here. And and she has, and she's she's done phenomenally. So, um, yeah, so they're in good hands, but. Um, but yeah, it, it was a it was it was an awesome time, and you know I would say, yeah, I mean I've worked with Olympians and I've worked with professional athletes, and you know I would say there's a couple things that I think separate them, and this is going to sound so counterintuitive, but they don't compete. They, in the sense that, they're not competing with the people around them; they're competing with themselves, a hundred percent of the time, like. And, and they just, they don't have this like self-consciousness that I think is what holds a lot of us back. It's just, they're so focused on the work and, and the quality of their work. And they just are absorbed in that. And everything else just falls away, you know? And I think that's what I've always admired in, in the athletes. And I, and I think, you know, one of the, the principles that I live my life by is that, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna compete. You know, I, 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 no one is going to be better at being me than me. So I'm just going to be me and, and I'm going to, you know, I'm just, I'm going to uh, absorb myself in, in the things that I really care about and I'm going to live my values and, and that's all I'm going to focus on. And, and I think if, I think if we can do that, um, the outcomes kind of take care of themselves, you know, and, and we get pushed toward, we almost don't even need goals at that point because we get pushed toward the, the things that we're really excited about and that, um, and, and then, and we're willing to kind of, grind through the less glamorous points to kind of just pursue that work. Um, so definitely, I think, you know, not competing is is definitely a, an attribute that I see um, in, a, in a lot of the really successful athletes that I've worked with. And I think number two is self-awareness. So, um, and I would say, you know, I've had just some exceptional leaders that I have come across and they always carve out time to think. Like they spend time alone, they don't seem distracted by things. Um, they're just really clear about their life, but they're all those things because they they create space for themselves daily to to really think. And and I would say that that is the superpower of the twenty first century <laughs> is being control of your attention and control of your thoughts. And but if you don't make space to actually understand the contents of your mind, you're fucked. 
<laughs> totally. And sorry, you're screwed. You can edit that out. No, whatever. you can say, but yeah. I, say whatever you want you know, here. But, but, I, but I think that that, um, you know, to me, like when I think about, you know, all the, the academic work I've done in the, in the field of psychology and, you know, for me, you know, you start with self-awareness and, and you start to build a framework for yourself that helps you understand that internal dialogue. Like if you if you are not able to understand the conversation that's happening internally, it's very, very hard to make clear decisions about your life. Because a lot of what goes on in our mind, that wheel that turns, is generally nonsense. So we need to be able to discern, okay, what is nonsense and what is worth keeping? The stuff that's worth keeping is who you want to be. The nonsense is who you don't want to be. But if you allow that to dominate or got at worst, you're not aware of it, you end up flinging yourself in all sorts of directions. I think that that is some of the most valuable information that any of the listeners have heard in mm. all the podcasts. Well, and here's why. What you just shared is taken from personal experience and also taken from some of the best in the world. Mm. And you're showing us one of the defining attributes of these individuals that you're right, completely counterintuitive. Yeah. And they're undistracted. Yeah. And they're not competing. Yeah. And they are fully invested in being the best version mm -hmm. of themselves. Yeah. And that's powerful. Yeah. And defining that for themselves, you know? Mm. Kristen Holmes, <laughs> you are- Love you. A, I love you too. You are an amazing, amazing human. Everyone should know who you are. And in due time, Aww. they will. I appreciate and that. We're going to include all your links and your link uh, to your Instagram and your Whoop and all your uh, amazing things that you're doing. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.